We're beginning a brand new series this morning, and along with many other churches in the greater Austin area, we're taking a look at how we can love where we live. And uh, again, as Brett said, there'll be a group link after this service where you can get connected to a community group and perhaps make an impact. We're uh, encouraging all of our groups to find a neighbor in need, just a, a neighbor of one of the group members, and to organize a project put your skills to work to help and serve that neighbor and make a difference in the city in the life of someone who lives near you. So uh, that's what's after the service. But during the month, we're going to be looking at four ways where we can love, how we can love where we live. And just to give you an idea of what's coming up, this morning we'll be looking at doing work. And then next week we'll be looking at loving justice and handling wealth and finally being present. So there you go. That's what's to come. All of these are taken from the wisdom of the book of Proverbs, or as some of you may have guessed, an opportunity for Morgan to tie up some loose threads for my series in the spring. So, two birds, one Bible, let's go. <laughs> Selected readings here from the book of Proverbs, beginning in chapter 8. Does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand... Besides the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out, I raise my voice to all mankind. Lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Do you see someone skilled in their work? They'll serve before kings. They will not serve before officials of low rank. He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway, and that's God's word to us this morning. Now, if you're familiar at all with the book of Proverbs, you know it's got a a number of themes in there, and one of the themes that's near the top in terms of frequency is the subject of work, uh, of labor, of your job. And Proverbs talks a lot about work because, as we're going to see, the Bible itself is actually incredibly positive about work, about labor, about your job, and says your work is far, far more than just the way that you spend some time, you know, ticking off hours during the day, just the way you pay your bills. No, your work is rather a way you can change the world around you and love where you live. So this morning, let me give you, if I could, four strategies, four strategies from the book of Proverbs on how you can love where you live through the place that many of us, if not most of us, spend much of our days and most of our energies. Let's look at our work. What does the Bible show you that you should do with your work, your occupation, your job? Well, let's see. Four things this morning, four strategies. Number one, it says we should rethink our work. We should recall our work. We should rewrite our work. And finally, redeem your work. Let's go. Number one, let's see what it means to rethink our work. Proverbs 10.4 says this, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Now, when you first read it, it looks like the typical, you know, moralistic condemnation of laziness. You know, don't be lazy and you won't be poor kind of a thought. And, and there's a bit of that in there, but there's actually much more than in there than meets the eye, especially if you know the old King James translation of this, which doesn't say anything about being lazy, only something about being slack. 
It says don't work with a slack hand. And that actually gives you a different meaning, a better idea about what the Bible's view of work is. Because laziness, of course, means not working at all. But slackness means not working in the way one ought. As in a slack sail on a ship. Right, that's not moving the ship or a slack bowstring that can't fire an arrow. In other words, a slack hand, a slack sail, a slack bow isn't doing the job it was made to do. There's a presupposition here that the hand, the bow, the sail ought to be working, ought to be doing something. There is, in other words, a moral obligation... The Bible says that you have to do work. Why? Why is this? Well, Proverbs, you may know, is written on the foundation of Genesis, the book of Genesis. And Genesis is incredibly positive and affirming of the idea that you were made to work, actually, that, that work is a gift. Work's a good thing. And the best way to see how positive the Bible is, is actually to contrast it against a couple of other worldviews from antiquity. Let me give you two. First, you may know that the ancient Greeks had an incredibly low view of work. And you see this come alive, especially in in the myth or the story of Pandora's box. You may have heard of that. In classical Greek mythology, Pandora was the first woman on earth in the Greek god Zeus, right? And one of his classic revenge schemes, more or less, tricks Pandora into opening the box and out comes into the world all manner of terrible and evil things. Death comes out, pain comes out, sorrow, poverty comes out, but something else also considered evil by the Greeks came out, and that's work. Work comes out of Pandora's box. Work came out and was considered an evil forced upon mankind. And in Greek society, therefore, the highest status you could have, the best job you could get, would be to be a philosopher. We sat around on a pillow and sort of talked all day, right? Philosophers on the top, day laborers on the bottom. The goal was to work the least. Why? Oh, because work was an evil. Second example, in the, in the creation, Babylonian creation story, the Enuma Elish, something I'm sure you read your kids at bedtime, right? The god Marduk is depicted killing a female goddess and then creating the universe, the world, out of her dead carcass. And then he makes man to do all the labor that gods did not want to do. So the Greeks said, work is an evil that you try to escape, The Babylonians said the world is born from violence and a dead carcass, and you're a slave to the gods, by the way. But the Bible's perspective on work couldn't be more different or liberating. Because in the book of Genesis, what do you have, right? I mean, you've got a God who creates everything, including people, from love, for love, for beauty, calls it all good, man, creates a garden, puts man and woman, male and female, into that paradise, and before any evil, any suffering ever enters the world, what does he give them to do? He gives them a job. He puts them to work. Go, take care of the garden. Steward my world, right? Be fruitful, multiply. Yeah, Adam, go name the animals. There's zoology, botany there. Maybe even construction one day, right? I mean, God labored to create the universe. And then, and then he's depicted as a gardener 
with his hands in the dirt. Making people, making people, right? And whose ideal state of humankind is to include work as part of a healthy righteous and God-glorifying lifestyle. And then in the New Testament, to take it a step further, it says far from just making people to do the work. No, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes to earth in a human form, and what does he do? Hmm? Philosophize on a pillow? No, no, no. What does he come as? What? What? You know, a carpenter. Yeah, he does manual labor. He works with his hands. He builds table and chairs to support his mother and siblings for years. What kind of a God is this? Hmm. It's the kind of a God who invites you to rethink your work. Rethink your work. See, your work isn't demeaning today. No, no, no. It's dignifying. If God himself is at work in the world, as the Bible says, then in a way, one of the ways you can most reflect God's heart, reflect his nature, is to do work yourself. The German theologian, Martin Luther, old Martin, yeah, old Marty, he looked at Psalm 147, verse 13. And in the psalm, in Psalm 147, there's a, there's a writer speaking to encouraging a city that God's going to take care of it. And he says that this, he's the, the psalmist says, verse 13, that God strengthens the bars of your gates. Nice verse, right? Well, Luther looked at that and asked, well, how does God actually do that? How does God strengthen the bars of the gates, or how does God take care of, secure a city? Well, his mind in his his commentary, it goes wild, and he begins to list all the ways this could happen. Not only, and first of all, through great craftsmanship, right, of iron bars of gates, but through good government, right? Good government keeps the city safe. Good city laws, wise rulers and officials, good law enforcement, good social services. Oh, all those things keep a city safe. Then he went on to look at verse 16 where it says, God feeds every living thing. And he asked, well, how does God do that? How does God feed every living thing? And he asked, well, isn't that through the farmer, right? Through the farmer, through the baker, To the ones who deliver food in our day, it would be a truck driver, right? I mean, Luther said, God provides for the world, takes care of cities through the gifts of work he puts in his children, in you and me. And he said this, what else is all our work to God, whether in the fields, in the garden, in the city, in the house, in war, or in government, but a child's performance by which God wants to give his gifts in the fields, at home, and everywhere else. He summarizes it like this. God milks the cows through the vocation of the milkmaids. Oh, friend, rethink your work today. It's not demeaning. It's dignifying. Your work is the way you model God's heart and follow him. Let me ask you, do do you cut hair today? Do some other kind of, yes, kind of beauty service. You are taking dominion over unruly heads. You're making the world more beautiful, especially for all us husbands. We all appreciate you, right? Do you clean houses, right? You're you're a gift to the world. You are keeping disease and sickness from spreading. You're creating order 
out of chaos, just like God did when he made the world, right? You work in real estate. Uh, you're providing homes, maybe businesses for, for places for people and businesses to flourish and prosper and the city itself to flourish. Uh, uh, do, you, do you teach? Uh, you're, you're shaping minds themselves to do work one day which is itself a gift. I could go on and on. Entrepreneurs, tech, right? Engineers. Listen, are you wiping bottoms and noses right now? You're living out Psalm 147, caring for creation and for vulnerable people made in God's image. You're telling them the most foundational thing every living being needs to hear, which is that they are loved. They're loved. Rethink your work. See it in light of God's word. He made you. To work alongside him, or as Ephesians says, to do good works he has prepared in advance before you ever showed up. Number two, recall your work. That's number one. Number two, though, don't just rethink, but recall your work. Recall it. Now you're saying, okay, okay, uh, I'm supposed to work. Uh, My work is dignifying. Our God's a laboring God, a working God, but what am I supposed to do? with my work, right? What am I supposed to do with it? Well, first, first, hear this, you have to recall it. What does that mean? Well, let's look at one proverb and try to get some direction from that. Proverbs 10.5 says, he who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. All right, now you're saying, well, how does this connect to my work other than maybe telling me not to take a nap on the job, right? Don't don't sleep on the job. Well, the reason that you may not get this one and the reason I had trouble with it at first is because we, I believe, don't often connect the dots between our work and the larger community. We effortlessly connect the dots between our work and ourselves, how how our job makes us look, how our our financial status makes us look, how our work makes us feel about ourselves. But we rarely, if ever, as a culture or individuals, make an effort to connect the dots between our work and our work's impact on our families and the community, the city, the nation. I mean, look at this proverb. What's this person being chastised for? Well, first of all, who is it, right? Uh, Many Proverbs, most Proverbs say, hey, look at this man, right? Look at this woman, but who is it pointing to here? Look at this what? Son, right? It's a son, a family member who through his work has done what? He's brought what? Disgrace upon who? The family, right? Let me be the family business. His lack of work has disgraced his community. You say, well, gosh, that was then. You know, this is now. That was shame and honor kind of culture stuff. Now we're liberated from all that. Hold on. Again, this was written against the backdrop of Genesis. And the green screen, if I could use that term, the green screen of what we'll look at in greater depth next week, which was the idea of shalom, of God's heart to weave together the world. And what has this family member done here? Not, not weave something together. What's he done? He's unraveled, unraveled his community through his lack of work. Here's the point. The Bible's pressing you to ask the question, why do you do what you do? Hmm? What's called you into where you are? Is it only for you or is it something bigger than you and your kingdom, you and your family, nuclear family? Do you see your work in light of the whole world? 
Dorothy Sayers was a British uh, essayist and novelist, wrote some mystery novels, friend of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. After World War II, she wrote this. Fascinating. She wrote, The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us, we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be psychologically and socially to think otherwise. In the modern view, people become doctors, not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring themselves up in the world. People become lawyers, not because they have a passion for justice, but to bring themselves up in the world. During World War II, one of the greatest surprises for many Englishmen who had to serve in the army was that they found themselves, for the very first time in their lives, happy and satisfied. Why? Well, for the very first time, they found themselves doing something not for the pay, not for the status, but for the sake of getting something done for us all. Wow. Hear what she's saying. She's saying work can be, no matter what it is, how difficult, hard, or or low-paying, work can be so satisfying if it's done for the sake of others first. Others first, not just the self. Florence Nightingale, maybe you've heard of her, was a pioneer in the field of nursing and in doing so really became a pioneer in the field of women's rights. And she was born in 1820 in England in a culture that viewed nursing as little better a profession than being a streetwalker. The two were equivalent. And she fought not against just society, but her own parents in becoming a nurse and wanting to tend to the sick and wounded. But through her calling, through her excellent service and her Christian faith, She became so famous, she even befriended the queen, Queen Victoria, and was awarded countless medals on her. She campaigned uh, through her platform against colonialism in her day, and her life was so bright. This is what Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, had to say about her after her service to the wounded in a battle in India, where she was and worked. It says, when she arrived after the battle of Inkerman, I think it was, there were neither beds nor other amenities for the wounded. There were 10,000 under the charge of this single woman. The death rate among the wounded was 42% before she arrived and immediately came down to 31% and ultimately to 5%. It is said that she did an amount of work which big and strong men were unable to do. She used to work nearly 20 hours day and night. When the women working under her went to sleep, she, lamp in hand, went out alone at midnight to the patient's bedside, comforted them, and herself gave them whatever food and other things were necessary. She was not afraid of going even to the battlefront and did not know what fear was. She feared only God, knowing that one has to die someday or other. She readily bore whatever hardships were necessary in order to alleviate the suffering of others. Now, could you imagine doing your work in such a way that non-Christians even, com- even were complimentary, were convicted by it, inspired? By the way, we did our work on the job side every day. Oh, Nightingale didn't fear battle, didn't fear death, feared only God. Where did this come from? Well, first it came from a deep relationship with God through Jesus. And during a rough patch in her life, when her mother in particular was dead set on keeping her out of nursing because of the social stigma, embarrassment of the family, Florence took a vacation, traveled the world, and to pray through her difficulty. And this is what she wrote in her journal on her journey. I love this. March 7th, she writes, Thursday. Look at this. God called me in the morning. How many of us are with God in the morning? 
allowing us to call us. Oh, yeah. And asked me, would I do good for him alone without the reputation and self-interest? And then look what this nearness in God birthed into her five days later, March 12th. Oh God, thou puttest into my heart this great desire to devote myself to the sick and sorrowful. I offer it to thee, to thee. Do with it what is for thy service. Finally, a few months later, on her 30th birthday, she wrote this. Today I am 30. The age Christ began his mission. Now no more childish things, no more vain things, no more love, no more marriage. Now, Lord, let me only think of thy will, what thou willest me to do. O Lord, thy will, thy will. It's good stuff, huh? Now, you may not have as deep a sense of vocation as she had, but you can do what she did, which was to echo the prophet Isaiah's words, here I am, Lord, send me right? Send me where you want. Listen, have you ever prayed that? Here I am, Lord. Send me, right? Let me do it not just for the money, God, but for the impact I could make on the community, on the world around me. Listen, church, if we only do what we do just for the money, just for the money at some point, and we don't have the larger community in mind, Proverbs 10 is quite literally saying, shame on us. That's a disgrace. That's a disgrace. There's so much more our work could be about. So church, recall your work. Let something bigger, right, than money, prestige, a title, call you into what you're doing. Draw near to God. Do something with excellence, passion, conviction, and trust God. Speak the door. Open it to you. He will. Number three, let's not only recall your work, but rewrite our work. Rewrite it. Look at Proverbs 8. Love this. Proverbs 8 asks rhetorically, so you'll think about it. Does not wisdom call out, does an understanding raise her voice at the highest point along the way where the paths meet? She takes her stand beside the gate leading into the city. She cries aloud. All right. This is telling us here that wisdom, right? God's wisdom, God's way of thinking, doing things ought to be brought to bear where? Hmm. Two places. First, it says God's wisdom, his perspective, ought to be influential at the gate, it said. The gate. Now, the gates are where the rulers, where the leaders of the city gathered to make decisions and public policy. This is saying our faith isn't to be privatized, but to be brought into the public square to make a difference where it matters, right? Business, economics, politics, you name it. But it's not just the gates. It also says wisdom, God's way of doing life, should be heard where? Where's that? It says the highest point. The highest point. What's this? Well, the highest point. Ancient cultures was the place where a culture or a city placed its most prized possession. Think of the Parthenon, right, in ancient Greece. Uh, Cultures went to either the highest point of a mountain or the highest point of a city or the highest building they built, and they put on top, at the highest point, the thing that culture valued most. And of course, for centuries, the highest point that culture cities valued was a temple, right? Or a church at some point. But now, what are our highest points today? Hmm? What are our high places, so to speak? No longer temples or churches or faith-based things. No, office buildings, right? Bank buildings, financial buildings. In other words, our highest value as a culture now is our work, success it may bring us, 
maybe our financial life, right? Here's what I'm getting at. Every culture, each nation has a really big story. It tells its citizens about what life is all about, what your job is all about, what your family's for, what your choices are for, and especially if you're from the other side of the world in in an authoritarian, rule-based culture, right? Your parents taught you to honor community, parents, the rules. You come here, it's a bit of culture shock, right? Why? Because there's another story our nation has, tries to put us all into. And of course, Austin, Texas, it's no exception point is, what Proverbs is telling you here is that God's big story, right? God's wisdom ought to be the thing that's heard in your life above and beyond the culture's story. God's wisdom, God's story, God's voice ought to be the thing shaping your work from the highest point. Not your culture's story. Not even our nation's story. So how do we do that, all right? How do we live that out? Here's the best example I could find last 150 years or so, uh, in England, in the 1700s, there was something called the Great Awakening. It's an amazing Christian revival where hundreds of thousands of people were radically converted to Christianity. And of course, they began to ask, well, now how, how does the gospel come to bear on, on my job, on my work site, right, uh, on our culture? How does the gospel come out into the public square and affect all these things, maybe even our economy, And once they began to look at their jobs and culture through a gospel-centered lens, they began to see right away something that didn't square with that, which was the African slave trade. And so for 30 years, 30 years, three decades, Christians in Britain began to work towards the abolition of slavery. And at one point, these Christians did a massive campaign for the hearts of British citizens and got over more than half the nation. Think about that. Half a nation to sign a petition to abolish slavery. So why wasn't it abolished sooner? Well, as you can imagine, the money classes in particular had a lot to lose. They fought against it because they understood correctly. Their economy was, to a large degree, built around the slave trade. And I found this actual, this story in a great little history book about that time period. Went on to say this. I'm just going to read it to you. Historian says this. The planters in the colonies, those were the British plantations, planters warned that emancipation would cost investors in Britain catastrophic losses and pointed out that everyone in Britain would pay because the price of sugar and the price of many other foodstuffs would rise greatly if it were no longer produced by free labor. These appeals carried weight in the House of Lords in those days because the Lords weren't figureheads and the money class stood to lose more mightily than everyone else. And their agreement was needed for legislation. And to gain agreement, the abolitionists in the House of Commons accepted provisions in the Abolition Act so as to compensate the planters for all their losses for an enormous sum right out of the British Treasury equal to one half of the annual British budget. The Abolition Act passed in 1833, providing that on August 1, 1834, slavery would cease in all British colonies. The direct cost to individual British citizens was substantial, both in taxes lost from the planters and continuing tax support of naval operations against slave ships. And it resulted in a much higher cost of living. The price of sugar and other foodstuffs did rise sharply as predicted. Indeed, the costs of emancipation were so high that historian Seymour Drescher called the British abolition of slavery voluntary econocide. 
And scholars have been desperately trying to figure out why the British abolitionists were really willing to sacrifice so much profit to end slavery. Historian Howard Temperley says the history of British abolition is so puzzling because all historians believe all political behavior is self-interested. He said the British anti-slavery movement, this is Howard Temperley, has continued to intrigue historians, not the least, because of the apparent lack of self-interest on the part of its principal supporters. This is totally contrary to conventional views of political behavior. It's given rise to much controversy, yet no one has succeeded in showing that those who campaigned for the end of the slave trade and then for the freeing of the slaves stood to personally gain in any way but only to lose. He concluded it with this thought. The fact is, those who brought about abolition in Britain quoted the Bible and talked about sin and God's saving grace. Now, you may not have something as so obvious as that, right? Maybe, and therefore, something, nothing so difficult as that, but I hope you see the point here. These, these Christians urge their fellow citizens to rewrite their work, right? To rewrite the point of their economy. And if they could rewrite their whole economy, I mean, surely you and I, we can rewrite our employment today. We can let God's big story, freedom, right? Justice, love, mercy, purpose, generosity, shape it. Not our own glory, writes our story, but the glory of God. And maybe this is, is simple and starts in a, place, uh, in a place like this, just praying every day at your desk for God to help you rewrite your story, right? Uh, maybe you, you've got an opportunity to pray with some coworkers for God to rewrite your business's story. And listen, you can watch what happens. You don't got to put up a sign and advertise prayer meeting, Bible study, right? I don't have to do that. No, no. Just ask the question. God, am I allowing your big story, your gospel, to write my work life? Which bottom line am I really after? Doing good in the world or making a profit for shareholders? And if there's a conflict, God, what do I do? Hmm? Or does it, what do I do? When there's a conflict, God, help me to choose doing good for the world over just making a profit alone. Listen, think about what a change that would make, right? I mean, these Christians in England did. They chose doing good over making a profit over even their standard of living. And everyone was bettered in the long run. So number one, rethink your work. Number two, recall your work. Number three, rewrite your work. And finally, redeem your work. Redeem your work. Now, maybe as we've been going along, you've been touched or inspired or encouraged convicted but i would imagine that some of you maybe all of you at some point you would say yeah but yeah but yeah but just about every time i think my work is gonna i'm gonna do well i'm gonna i'm gonna break through i'm gonna get that deal or contract or or promotion it all fails i can't ever seem to to make it or break through or get to the top or or maybe you you're on the other end maybe you've tasted unbelievable success People would point to you as what, how people ought to be in their career field. But you know, even to the horror of your own heart, it's not enough. You're still the same person, still insecure, unhappy, angry. The money, the success didn't help that. It only fueled that. Now, what, what is that there? 
People who are successful, they talk about that all the time. So on either end, either you're struggling with making it to the top or you're struggling at the top, what's the thing? What is that thing on the inside that says, you've got to have more and you know it's not from a healthy place? Does your wife tells you, husband tells you, friends or kids tell you, what is that? Ariana Huffington, she of the famous website, wrote a biography about the great painter Pablo Picasso. And she said that near the end of his life, he himself asked that same question. He said, asked painting, exhibiting, what's it all about? What's it all for? And she wrote, it was the question that set the tone of the last years of Picasso's life. He felt more and more like Sisyphus, condemned to roll his heavy stone up a hill, only to have it roll back as he reached the top. Day after day. Worst of all, he said, is that he never finishes. Sisyphus never does. There's never a moment when you can say, I've worked well and tomorrow is Sunday. (laughs) You can put a picture aside and say you won't touch it again, but you can never write the end. And Huffington concludes this way. Picasso was sick and the couples, the artist, artwork, that filled his work in 1969 bore the stamp of his sickness. His body was a sack of ills and frustrated desires. The body that had for so long served him so well had turned against him. But a sickness much more frightening, the inevitable sickness of a man close to 90, was a soul sickness of a man close to death and utterly disconnected from the source of life. All that was left was a relentless, demonic productivity. Hmm. Let me ask you, is there an area of your life, your work life, that's a sack of ills and frustrated desires? Or is there a relentless, demonic productivity? You know, you can't stop, won't stop. Let me suggest to you that it's because there's a disconnection, as she wrote, from the source of life. Which is what, in the end, Proverbs 15 points us to. Let's look at this. Verse 19 says, The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns. The path of the upright is a highway. The key with this is to look at the strange contrast. Listen. If the way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, then whose path, on the other hand, should be a highway, right? It should say the diligent, right? The hard-working man or woman. But it doesn't say that. It says, no, the upright's path is clear, which means the sluggard here is the contrast and another metaphor for sinner, right? Someone who's not upright, which is who? <laughs> All of us, right? There's not one upright among us, which means all of us have our way blocked with thorns when it comes to our work, right? Proverbs 15 is just saying all of us struggle with our work. All of us try to find redemption through what we do, through what we make. I mean, through how we parent our kids. It never seems to come out like we want and satisfy us like we thought it could. And because none of us are upright, We all have something blocking our way. What blocks the way? Hmm? Thorns. Thorns. This is brilliant. Think, think, think. Again, Proverbs layered on top of Genesis. What was cursed in the garden when mankind rebelled? What did God say would now creep into paradise? What? 
thorns. Thorns would block every person's way. It's God's way of saying again, no matter how much you work, no matter how well you do, it won't be enough. Your work will never satisfy your heart unless something comes in to heal our heart, make us upright, and redeem our work. But in a twist, so great, only God could have done it. Do you know what heals our work? What redeems our work? Oh, the thorns block our work. The Bible says thorns redeem our work as well. Mark chapter 15. End of Jesus' life, it says, Then the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together what? a crown of thorns, and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. And again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Can you you see what's happening here? Jesus is suffering, is redeeming everything. He's redeeming thorns through thorns. He's reversing the curse, redeeming the thorns. Humankind's curse is now a crown for the Son of God. This is Jesus' way of saying, in my kingdom, I redeem anything. Even thorns are crowns. Even your work can make you beautiful. See, to redeem means to buy back. What has Jesus bought back? What has he paid for? Everything, even the thorns even your thorns. And therefore, in his kingdom, your work can be transformed. And if your trust is in him, you put your heart's hope in him, you can rest, hear this, not from your work, not from your job, because God made you to do that, but you can rest from the work beneath the work. You can rest from trying to turn your work into your redemption and salvation, from trying to turn your work into your life and means of being somebody. You can do what Picasso never could. You could rest on Sunday. You can experience the rest of the resurrection Sunday of Jesus Christ. And to redeem your work is therefore to look at your work, whatever it is, and say to it this one phrase, one phrase, freed me so much in my own life. And you say this to your work. You don't own me. You don't own me. I say it to you all the time. (laughs) You don't own me. This is the place you got to begin if you want to do any kind of work in life. If you want to be able to rethink, recall, rewrite, you first have to redeem it. That means to put it in its proper place. Look at it and say, you don't own me. I've got a new master, a new boss, a new Lord, a new king. See, rethink your work, church. See that God's called you to labor. Work with him in the world and that this is good. Number two, recall your work. Do it with others in mind. Three, rewrite your work. Dare to ask the question, God, does my work reflect your story? Four, redeem your work. Say to it, you don't own me. Another master, another Lord has and does.